You'll find Revelation 5 on page 1659, 1660, page 1659, and continuing on to page 1650, 1660, excuse me, so 1659, continuing on to 1660, Revelation chapter 5, we'll read this in its entirety. Listen now, listen, children. The word of God. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside or on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a heart and golden bowls Full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for thou wast slain, and thou hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing, and honor, and glory, and power, 
be unto him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Well, my friends, what a glorious picture book we have in the book of Revelation. What a glorious picture book we have. And what an amazing amount of riches, particularly of rich teaching and rich doctrine. Reasons why we're taking our time as we go through the book of Revelation. Because there is so much here. And we don't want to miss any part of it. It'd be like having a seven-course meal. And you don't want to skip any of those courses. You want to make sure that you are able to taste and to enjoy all seven courses. And so it is here in the book of Revelation, and particularly now in chapter 5. The vision of the book of seven seals as creation worships the Lamb who is able to open the sealed book. Creation worships the Lamb who is able to open the sealed book. Now last week we considered the sealed book. And of course we took note of the fact that that sealed book was in, as you remember children, in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. Of course, it's God the Father who is sitting there. And so here he has, he has the sealed book, the sealed scroll, and it's in his right hand. It's sealed with seven seals, which of course, as we know, represents God's eternal plan. And it's a perfect plan. That's why there are seven seals, seven, the number of perfection. But what is the problem? The problem was that no one in creation was found who could break the seals and open the book. And not just as a way of revealing God's plan, but also putting God's plan into effect. And so, as a result of this, remember what John's reaction was. Verse 4, So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But then secondly, we have the lamb. The lamb, the one who is the overcomer, if you will, the overcomer, the one who triumphs, the overcomer, as we will see. Now, he is also the one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Verse 5, one of the elders, representing the church, of course, one of the presbyters, the elders, don't weep, weep not. Behold, look, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed, has overcome to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Then as we noted last week, John turns he looks, but he doesn't see 
a lion, does he? Yes, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the, the beast, uh, the, the king of the beast, as it were, the, the one who is victorious, the one who roars like a lion, and also the one who is the root of David, pointing to the fact that Jesus is both God and man, so he's descended from David, but at the same time, he's the root of David. He's the one from whom David sprang, if you will, with that great mystery, as Jesus talked about, the Lord said unto my Lord. He is the overcomer. He's prevailed. But notice the vision, then, of this overcomer. The vision is that not of a, lamb, not of a lion, but as he turns to look, he sees a lamb. A lamb. A lamb. As a matter of fact, a lamb as if he were slain, killed, slaughtered, yet still standing because he did not succumb. He's the overcomer. So he's the lion, but he's also the lamb. And indeed, that is how he exercises the power of a lion by his having been the lamb and having suffered the death on the cross. Notice how he's described there, having seven horns and seven eyes. Horns, the, the vision of strength, power, eyes, intelligence, wisdom, seeing, all-seeing, all-knowing. And of course, the number seven in both cases, once again, the number of perfection. Notice then his action. He takes... Uh, he takes the scroll out of the right hand of him who sits on the throne. So the father has it in his right hand, offers it in a sense, yet it is also true that he actually takes this. He has the authority to take it. He takes the scroll out of the right hand of him who sits on the throne. This marks Jesus' coronation, that is to say, the fact that at the time of his ascension, after his resurrection, you remember, raising from the dead, and then he ascended into heaven. So he went up in the clouds, and so he sh someday shall return from that position. His coronation, so that he is now ascended into glory, sitting at the right hand of his father. As one commentator, as one preacher has put it, the Lord is not the God of damage control. He's not the God of damage control. You know, we things happen to us, don't they? We have all kinds of accidents that happen, or things that happen to us. And so we, okay, we had a flat tire, we got to adjust to this, and so forth. We have all kinds of things that happen to us in our lives. Sometimes interacting with people, sometimes physical machinery, whatever it may happen to be. But God is not like that. God is not the one who has to adjust to the circumstances. God is not the one who's taken by surprise. He is not the God of damage control. He is the one who is totally sovereign over all things. And it is seen here by the fact that it is the Lord Jesus 
the lion, who is also the lamb, who was slain but is still standing, who had the power and the authority to break the seals, to reveal God's will, but also to put it into effect, to put the plan into effect as the Lord Jesus is sovereignly directing all things in this world. He is the mediator. He is the mediatorial king. Well, with that then, in the first part of Revelation 5, we now come, having seen the sealed book, having witnessed the Lamb, we now come thirdly to the worship. The worship. Notice that this is offered in verse 8. This is offered, now when he taken the skull, it is offered by the four living creatures and the 24 elders. So who are these four living creatures, first of all? They are the cherubim. It's like angels. Apparently a special type of angel. But angelic beings, spiritual beings, not having physical bodies per se, like you and I have physical bodies, although can they can be revealed to us. They can, they can take on a sort of physical appearance. But four living creatures, the cherubim, and the 24 elders, the elders, the leaders, these presbyters. That's where we get the word Presbyterian from. Presbyteros, it means elder. So someone who has either actually literal age or at least a maturity, a man who is able to be set apart for this work. These presbyters are representatives of Christ and of the people. And the number then of them points to the church as a whole. Twelve tribes and twelve apostles. Notice their deep respect. They fell down before the Lamb. They fell down. They prostrated themselves. They fell down before the Lamb. They recognized him for who he is, namely the Son of God. Now, in this context, then, notice the Old Testament symbolism, the Old Covenant symbolism. And notice what I'm saying here, the symbolism. That's the whole point, by the way. That's the whole point, that... These are symbols, these are pictures, these are word pictures for us, picking up from that ceremonial worship of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant, so that we can understand something of what's going on here. So this is not intended for our worship today. Rather, these are symbols, these are pictures that are being portrayed here. First thing I want you to call your attention to was is the incense, the incense. So these golden bowls full of incense. Now, you, children, you know what incense is. You may burn a candle, and maybe there are incense candles. Maybe you've, you've you know, it has a certain smell that uh, is, is pleasant and may cover up other smells or whatever, but it's something that is pleasing. So I'm sure you've been in, in a house sometime where there's been an incense candle that is burning. And so incense then, this, this sweet smell that is being offered up to God. Priests in the Old Testament were the ones who offered up incense in the temple. 
And these, then, are described as the prayers of the saints. These are, are said to be the prayers of the saints. In Psalm 141, in verse 2, we read, Let my prayer, this is David speaking, Let my prayer be set before thee as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Again, it's a picture, is it not? Prayer, you see. So listen to me carefully. This is very important. It's a reminder I need to hear. Prayer should be regarded more in terms of a sacrifice <laughs> offered to God rather than in terms of any benefit which we may get from him. Let me repeat that. Prayer should be regarded more in terms of a sacrifice offered to God rather than in terms of any benefit which we may get from him. It is so easy to fall into a pattern of viewing our prayer like a shopping list. Okay? I confess that myself. It's so easy to do. As a matter of fact, by looking at a passage like this, this should be a wake-up call to us in terms of what prayer really should be. It's the offering up of incense, as it were, of a sweet-smelling savor, of a sacrifice before God, a sacrifice offered to God, rather than simply going through a shopping list. So that's one thing in terms of this old covenant symbolism teaches us something about prayer. But secondly, did you notice the harps? Now you know what the harps are. I'm sure you've seen a harp before. It's a stringed instrument. It's a big uh, instrument. There's a, a young lady who, uh, well, she's, I guess she's about getting middle age now, close to middle age, uh, but I knew her when she was a young lady uh, who uh, wanted to learn how to play the harp. She's a daughter of dear friends of mine, and uh, her poor parents had to haul that harp around, you know. Uh, so those are, that's what we think of today in terms of harps. Now, probably these harps were much smaller than what we think of today, like in a, like in a, a, a symphony orchestra. But these were, these were stringed instruments. Now, what's interesting, when you look at the harps, there are two things that they symbolize. The first is they symbolized the sacrificial system. So look with me, look with me at 1 Chronicles chapter 13. 1 Chronicles chapter 13 and verse 8. 1 Chronicles 13 and verse 8. First Chronicles 13, verse 8, this is when Dave was trying to bring back the Ark of the Covenant, and it wasn't done correctly, but nevertheless, there were some things that were done correctly. Verse 8, then David and all Israel played music before God with all their might, with singing on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on cymbals, and with trumpets. And uh, you'll notice here uh, that this is all part of this, the, the whole point here is it was all part of the sacrificial system. You find it again in 1 Chronicles 15, verse 16. 
1 Chronicles 15, verse 16. Then David spoke to the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brethren to be the singers accompanied by instruments of music, stringed instruments, harps, and cymbals by raising the voice with resounding joy. Who were the Levites? They were the priests. They were the priestly tribe. That was the tribe from whom the priest came. And that was the tribe that was particularly given to God in a special way in terms of all those sacrifices and preparing for all those sacrifices, first in the tabernacle and then in the temple. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 5. 2 Chronicles chapter 5. The first Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 5. And verse 12, this is at the dedication of the temple by Solomon, chapter 5 and verse 12. And the Levites, who were the singers, all those of Asaph and Heman and Jeduthun, with their sons and their brethren, stood at the east end of the altar, clothed in white linen, having cymbals, stringed instruments, and harps, and with them 120 priests sounding with trumpets. And again, this, what, is the, what is the context? The context is that of the sacrifices at the very dedication of the temple where all those sacrifices would take place. And then also look at uh, Psalm uh, 33, Psalm 33, and verse 2, Psalm 33, and verse 2. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. And of course, Psalm 150, the 150th Psalm that we often sing at the close of the service. Psalm 150 and verse 3. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the lute and harp. So, all of these things are pointing back when you hear, so when you have these references to harps and musical instruments, such as here in Revelation, but also in terms of what we were just talking about, when you see those references in Scripture, you are automatically reminded, first of all, of the sacrificial, the ceremonial system. And indeed, it is a sacrifice of praise that we are to offer before God. But secondly, it is also symbolic of the prophetic office and the work of the Holy Spirit. The prophetic office and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so Psalm 49, Psalm 49 and verse 4, Psalm 49 verse 4 says, I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will disclose my dark saying or my riddle on the harp. Isn't that interesting? So the harp then had to do as well with the giving of the Holy Spirit, his coming, and his bringing revelation. This is what we find in 1 Samuel chapter 10. This is what we find in 1 Samuel 10, verses 5 and following. When King Saul, when Saul, before he is anointed, when Saul is 
in ch chapter 10 of 1 Samuel, verse 5, when Saul is about to be anointed, and uh, the prophet, uh, the prophet uh, Samuel says to him, after that you shall come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, and it will happen when you come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a stringed instrument, a tambourine, a flute, and a harp before them. And they will be prophesying as they are playing on these instruments. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And let it be when these signs come to you that you do as the occasion demands for God is with you. You shall go down before me to Gilgal and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait. Verse 9, so it was when he had turned his back to go to, from Samuel, that God gave him another heart, and all those signs came to pass that day. When they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. Then the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. And it happened when all who knew him formerly saw that he indeed prophesied among the prophets, that the people said to one another, What is this that has come upon the son of Kish? is Saul also among the prophets. It was in the context, you see, of the Spirit coming upon the prophets, but coming upon Saul, who was given, as it were, this gift of prophecy. It was in that context that you had the playing upon the instruments, particularly the harps. So this is Old Covenant, Old Testament symbolism to tell us certain things, to allude to act, as it were, to that sacrificial system, and also, of course, to the prophetic office and the work of the Holy Spirit. So now we also, in terms of this worship, we see something else. We see, we hear their song, verse 9, and they sang a new song. Now children, when you hear something is new, and older people, when you hear something is new, like, oh, I got a new car, or I got a new, new toy, right? You say, well, it's something that's just, you know, right off, the, uh, right off the lot. Or, you know, everyone wants to buy a new car, or everybody wants to get a new gadget, or whatever. So we often think, when we hear the word new, we often think of something that has just been manufactured, or has just come into existence. But what we need to know is that when the Bible uses the word new, it usually means something else. So that newness in the Bible does not point to something that was, in this case, composed immediately. No, newness in the Bible, the idea, the concept of being new, points to that which has come from God. So I want you to think about other new things. So step back with me just for a second. Think of all the other new things that we find in the Bible. New Covenant. New Testament. New Heart. New Life. New Heavens. New Age. New Man. New Creature. New Creation. In all of those cases, that which is new is not so much a reference to something that was just composed or just brought about, but
but rather the fundamental, the fundamental meaning, it is that which has come from God. It is the Spirit who brings his renewing power, if you will. It is the Spirit who makes these things. And thus the new song, the new song here in verse 9, is not something that we come up with. It is that which came from God. Notice the content of this new song. Thou art worthy to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and thou hast made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So the first thing we note there is that the death of Christ remains a real focus of the text. For thou wast slain. How is it possible that Jesus could be slain? It's because he is the God-man. It's because God, in the person of the second person of the Trinity, became human flesh and was subject to death. That reality, that wonder, that amazing truth is the focus of this text. For thou wast slain. And in that regard, then, notice something about the atonement of Christ. In one sense, it is universal, isn't it? In the sense that it goes to every, it goes to the entire world. That's what Jesus said, did he not? When he was ascended, or as he was about to ascend into heaven, Acts 1, verse 28, verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. We read today from Acts uh, chapter 2. Do you remember the reading, verses 8 and following? How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And so this, this atonement, this death of Christ is universal in one sense, universal in that it goes, as we see here, to every ethnic group, every tribe. You see that? Verse 9, every tribe, every linguistic group, every tongue, every language, every social group, every people, and every political grouping, every nation. And so it is universal in that sense. But did you notice something else? It is also at the same time particular. Because he doesn't say of dying for everyone, but he says out of every tribe and tongue, and people, and nation. God 
has redeemed those people. Out of each of these groups, out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, there is a group that God has chosen. That's why Jesus said in John 17, I do not pray for the world, O Father. I pray for those whom thou hast given me. And so we see then the atonement, which is the focus. But among the benefits then are the fact, first of all, that we are kings and priests before God. Verse 10, and furthermore, we shall reign on the earth. Now, my friends, this is pointing to the fact that we who are believers in Jesus will reign with Christ eternally. But you know, we begin to exercise dominion now. We begin to exercise that now in terms of the development of creation, but more than that, we begin to exercise authority now over our sin, over our lusts, over the temptations, and so forth. And so this is what this is this what is being celebrated here in this new song, that he has made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So that is the um, that is the worship that is being offered by the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders. But not only is there, is there, there is, do we have their worship, but notice also the angelic hosts or the angelic armies. These angels then, verse 11, are around the throne and the four living creatures and the 24 elders. How many are there? Well, myriads of myriads, or 10,000 times 10,000. And thousands of thousands. This is a way of basically saying it's, a, it's an uncountable number. Can you imagine? I mean, think of, think of the Mercedes-Benz Stadium just for a moment. How many people are in there? Maybe 80,000 or so? 80,000? Something like that, right? That's a lot of people. Never been there, but, you know, a lot of people. You go to the big house, you go to the University of Michigan Stadium, uh, up in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan. That's the largest stadium in the in the perhaps the world, certainly the country. A hundred thousand people get in there to see the Wolverines play. All right, that's a lot of people. But here we've got ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands of angels. These powerful creatures who are engaged in worship. And what is their praise? Notice again, verse 12, as they say with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Again, the emphasis, my friends, is on the death of Jesus. And even the angels concentrate on this great fact. And then they go on to say, the sevenfold blessing to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory, and blessing. But not only do we have the angels and the four living creatures and the 24 elders representing the church, but this worship is offered by all creation. Notice verse 13. 
And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea. That's pretty wide. In heaven, on the earth, under the earth. That quite possibly is a reference, by the way, to the demons who are forced as we know, to confess that Jesus is Lord despite the fact they hate him. Isn't that amazing? But under the earth and on the sea, their praise is to the Father and the Son, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so we have praise here for both creation and redemption. The fact that God is the one who sits on the throne, who is sovereign over creation, but also the Lamb who was slain. Blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And then we have the conclusion. Amen. So let it be. So let it be. Continually. From the cherubim. Then they, the four living creatures said amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Now, my friends, as we look at this passage in which we see that creation worships the Lamb who is able to open the sealed book, I want to make two points of application. The first is this. Listen, children, older person, never neglect worship or treat it with indifference or disrespect. Never neglect worship or treat it with indifference or disrespect. This is why you come to church. It's in order to worship. My friends, worship is a great privilege. You are joining, as it were, with the angels. It's a great privilege. Worship is a benefit to your spirit. You are lifted up, properly speaking, when you worship. Worship is commanded by God. He demands our worship, and he commands it. He expects it. Worship is what we owe to God. Worship means coming into God's special presence, and worship means joining with the heavenly host in singing our Savior's praises. Never neglect Worship or treat it with indifference or disrespect when we cannot providentially gather as we couldn't a couple of weeks ago because of the weather. We should be grieving that. We should be mourning that. We should be missing that. When you cannot come because of illness or whatever it may happen to be, it should be something that you are really missing. And when you get here, when you come here, don't treat it with indifference or disrespect. Never do that. Never neglect it. And never be disrespectful with regard to it. That's one lesson we learn from this text. But then secondly, always focus on the lamb who was slain. Always focus on the lamb who was slain. He is the sacrifice. 
And my friends, there is no hope without him. I'm reminded of the Heidelberg question and answer number one. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And oh, great God, we pray that thy Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and work in our midst and bring about conversion and conviction of sin and comfort and joy. And Lord, give us a sense of what it means to worship thee, the true and the living God, and to join with the angels singing thy praise. So be pleased to do that, O God. Pardon us of our sins, even our sins of, of lackadaisical and improper worship. Forgive us our sins, O God. We know that even our worship must be covered with the blood of the Lamb. And so we thank thee, Lord, for all that thou hast done for us, as we thank thee in Jesus. Psalm 16.